Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Borscher. And today we're joined by Simon Burgess, Professor of Economics at the University of Bristol. Simon is a Labour economist and earlier in his career worked a lot on unemployment, poverty and public services, all topics that are very relevant for policy matters. But in the last decade or so, his work has focused much more on education, working on issues related to schools, teachers and, and pupils, and in all cases doing research that's highly policy relevant, exactly the sort of thing we're always interested in. Welcome, Simon. Hi. I think I've characterised your research focus fairly um, accurately, Simon. You've done lots uh, in many different areas. Uh, but yeah, how would you describe your research agenda at the moment? Yes, yeah, so right now, I guess schools, teachers and pupils does about sum it up. I've got uh, projects I'm working on under each of those headings. I'm very interested in pupil motivation, interested in teacher effectiveness, interested in school uh, school choice, school accountability. So yeah, so I think that was a good summary. Schools, teachers and pupils, that sounds not just relevant, that sounds incredibly relevant to our current situation. So on policy matters, we obviously talk a lot about policy matters, but recently we've been talking about COVID as well. You're actually our first guest since the COVID crisis, so uh, special honours to you. Um, and I guess um, we've been thinking a little bit in the last episode about how COVID might affect uh, various sectors in society, including higher education, schooling, and also sort of, you know, the, the current young cohort who are going to graduate into the labor market. Uh, with your focus on schooling and teachers, I guess our first question is, you know, in your opinion, uh, what is the impact of losing all the schooling during the coronavirus situation? It's at least 12 weeks we're looking at. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, and uh, right now in the UK, it's a very, uh, very controversial, very emotional question. You know, when should schools return? So I think, yeah, I think there are a number of issues that, that where the current crisis affects uh, inter interlinks with schools and teachers. The first one, obviously, is that schools are shut. So there is no learning at school going on at all, um, apart from uh, the children of key workers uh, and vulnerable children. So one question is, how much, how much do we lose by not going to school? I mean, I think we, I think we know for sure that going to school um, raises your skills, um, makes you, uh, raises your ability, increases your ability. <laughs> we would hope so. We would, indeed, the money we spend on it. But, well, you know, you say that, but I mean, there is, there is definitely a school of thought that says that schooling is all just about a signal. You know, as lo all we need is that some kids go to school a bit longer than others. Um, and and uh, your, your colleague here has written papers on whether schooling is uh, a signal or uh, actually raises your skills. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so indeed. So I, I, we had a little Twitter conversation with some people who were saying, it, you know, it's not going to change. Everybody's still going to get the same kind of relative marks. Um, but I think I think things will definitely change. I think people will emerge from this period with uh, fewer skills, with lower skill levels, unless we do something about it. So, you know, you, if, if you look ahead, um, in about 10 years time, everybody in their 20s 
will have lower skills than than the cohort before the decade before so i guess let me just ask you on that because i mean i guess so yeah we obviously subscribe to this idea that human uh, that school forms human capital and makes us more able more productive etc etc uh, i guess my question is 12 weeks in the sort of the life cycle of schooling now that you know the uh, uh, i guess the school leaving age is set to let's say round about 18 uh, there's some ambiguity there, but let's say 18. Uh, I guess 12 weeks from a layman's perspective, you would say, you know, that really isn't that much. So, you know, who cares about 12 weeks of schooling when you have to be there till age 18 anyway? Um, on the other hand, I, as a parent of a four-year-old, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh God, you know, he's missing a lot of readings, there's a lot of numeracy, and, you know, I'm not quite capable to, you know, I'm not a teacher, even though I work in higher education. Um, so what is it? Is, is 12 weeks a lot or, or, or not in the grand scheme of things? Okay, so, so um, uh, I'm sure you're having a very exciting time with your four-year-old and you will look back <laughs> upon it very fondly in, in years to come. Yeah, very fond of the future. I'm sure. And so, yeah, so there was a number of points there. Um, so we want to try and estimate how much skill, what's the skill loss from missing, as you say, 12 weeks of schooling. And despite um, you know, there have been similar things in the past and, and most recently, of course, the Ebola crisis um, and various other things. So we, we can try and look at, but there's never been anything exactly like this. So, so I'm going to tell you a number, but, you know, you shouldn't take it too seriously. It's a kind of a ballpark number rather than a very precise number. Um, and the ballpark number is, is a, unfortunately, a, quite a technical measure. It's around 6% of a standard deviation of uh, educational achievement. So what does that mean? I, so I can say that that's not absolutely massive, but nor is it trivial. It's it's definitely uh, something there. I think it's um, it's less than the the impact of being uh, coming from a poor family throughout your life. So it's it's not as big as that. Uh, so that's yes, yeah, so that's not trivial. So the first thing that is happening because of the the COVID crisis is that the the, the cohorts of children who are in school are missing out. And the children, the children who are youngest are missing out more than that number, more than average, because they're on a very steep learning trajectory. And so they're going to miss out on more. Um, the second thing that's happening is that um, inequalities are increasing. That um, although so the, so the children are shut out of school, they have to learn at home. Um, and I, but I think that the capacity of um, of different families and the schools that they go to to help them is very different. So I think we're seeing really very polarized experience of education just now. And some children, uh, children going to, to private schools, probably their education is naturally not suffering that much. I mean, they're at home rather than in school, but they're having actual lessons with actual teachers, with their actual classmates. They're, doing, they're being set homework, they're doing their homework, handing it in getting it back marked and, and life just goes on whereas in a lot of other families I suspect um, you know there's very little learning going on at all um, so I think those are the two the, the two main things that, that we're seeing a loss of skills and that loss of skills is very much uh, socially graded it's much bigger in poorer families. So this this loss that you say uh, is a non-trivial effect and that's going to be the average but that's distributed uh, across families differently and so that could be quite a you know effect of the at the lower end so at the um at the the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum so the poorest families this could be quite a big uh, 
big loss. And that's going to play out then in future and later development. Is there anything, you know, I think the research is already coming, showing us this, right? So the Sutton Trust have done some survey and put stuff out, the IFS have put stuff out showing that, yeah, exactly the kind of thing we'd fear and that you talked about, the different home learning environments, different access to resources and online platforms and different levels of engagement between the schools and, and the families. It's all happening. Um, what can we do about it? You know, what could the government do about it? Is there, what sort of policy might be able to try and deal with this? Um, you know, if we accept, okay, there's been this loss of skills and it's unevenly distributed, we're back in school, hopefully, in September. You know, what would you suggest we can do to try and ameliorate some of these effects? Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you two answers on that. One of them is for, um, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, right now, if if the school closure continues and one of them is is for um later in the year so i think right now and coming back to something that uh france said um teachers really matter and i think you know no no even even though maybe some of us are actually meant to do some teaching now and again you know we're not trained young person teachers okay and i think that really matters and I think while schools have been working really, really hard to try and provide online links and material and worksheets, you know, send them home to the to the parents and the kid. Um, and that's that's helpful. But I mean, it's nothing like as as good as being taught by a teacher. So one of the things that happened in, in, in the UK is that and I think other countries there, there is um, uh, a whole new institution has been set up that provides lessons that are filmed lessons. Uh, throughout all of the curriculum years and new stuff every week and I think that's really helpful I mean I that's just my opinion I don't think there's any data on that yet and probably won't be for a while um, so I think I'm glad that's happening now what should happen next is yes you know come come the start of the summer holidays um, children are going to be very differently affected by by this situation if we don't do anything, um, we policymakers don't do anything, then that there's no reason to imagine that that skill loss will not be permanent and it will affect their lifetime chances, um, their earnings and, and, and so on, and all of the things that follow from that. So I think we I think we absolutely have to institute some policies to try and make sure that it doesn't persist, that we can catch up that learning loss by, you know, pick a random date by Christmas. Okay. So I think that's going to be expensive. It's going to be difficult. I mean, I think at the moment, my, my feeling is about the best way to do that is through small group tutoring, small group classes. So um, after the summer, so from September, we need, we need a diagnostic tool to find out who in particular is, is lost ground. Um, so that's some kind of test, I guess, to see who's, see who's particularly lost ground. I absolutely do not think we should do it by poverty status. You know, the poor kids have to go to more school, the rich ones don't. So we should do it on uh, on where you are in terms of uh, your knowledge. And uh, yeah, we, we, there's a, a huge amount of evidence of that, that small group classes, small group tutoring, two or three or something is very, very effective. It's also very expensive. Maybe we need to have groups of sort of five or 10 or something. Um, but we need to do this intensively over the over the winter term and hope that by christmas new year you know we're not going to equalize people but we're hopefully going to get back to where we might have been 
So that sounds like quite an intensive task there, because I'm guessing you wouldn't be just testing, let's say, the youngest kids or those doing the A-levels. You're going to have to test across all the different school years to see how much they might have lost in this period of 12 weeks or whatever, however long it might be. So that seems to me like a kind of testing exercise that would trump anything else we've ever done. Um, I mean, is that even feasible? Yeah, I, I don't know. It would certainly be a big scale. And, and yes, I mean, in principle, I would like it to, uh, you know, not just be one or two school years, but to be all the way across. I think if, I mean, and this is outside my own uh, expertise completely, but I mean, um, it would have to be an online test. So there was no kind of marking afterwards for teachers. You'd only want it to be fairly brief, you know, maybe, maybe an hour, maybe half an hour, maybe less for the little kids. Um, and just to try and figure out who's who's kind of lost the most over this period. Um, so, yeah, so I, I have no uh, detail or expertise to offer on what that might look like. Um, it would have to be online. It would have to be auto marked. Um, but I, I think, you know, otherwise we end up either doing it, we do it on some other basis. Like, you know, do you have free school meals or not, which I think is inappropriate. Um, or we don't do it at all or we do it for everyone. So I think even though you're absolutely right, it's quite a large undertaking, you know, uh, it's, it's worth, do, worth it trying, I think. So this loss of, of the time, the school time, the education, the building of skills, that matters, as we said, for all children. Um, but it's particularly important, this closing of schools for like the year 13, the year 11, so we're due to take high stakes exams that we know have implications for their next destination uh, and then on from that for their career. Um, and Ofqual, I think, have said that teach assessments are essentially going to be the way in which grades are assigned. And I think um, schools are going to submit their grades and, and a rank ordering of the pupils. And then that's going to be looked at by um, Ofqual and they're going to compare with what the schools have done in, in the last three or four years and try and um, agree a, a kind of grading for each student based on that. Um, so Ofqual are trying to do that, trying to be fair to schools, but also at the same time, they don't, you know, they're always worried about grade inflation. This seems, I, I don't know, there's no perfect way of doing this, but what are the dangers? That, I know that um, predicted grades do generate inequality, that, you know, predicted grades often, children from poorer backgrounds don't get predicted as higher grades as children from other backgrounds. And I think when you do blind tests and, and unblind tests and marking, all this subjectivity comes into it. So what do you think the impact of this kind of using teacher assessments is going to be on, again, on this kind of inequality issue? Yeah, no, I, th I, th I think, I think it's a really big issue. I have to say, I mean, I, I was initially against teacher assessments, but I honestly can't think of any other way of doing it because, you know, it's not just every child, it's every child times lots of subjects. So it, it would, anything else really would be, would not be possible. So I think it has to be based on teacher assessments. But I, I think I think your point about um, subjectivity is absolutely right. And there are studies from different countries, in, including our country, that show that teachers um, can have unconscious bias. And that if, if you compare marks that students get in, in a test where it's all anonymous and it's marked by someone on the other side of the country, um, with the same with the mark they get for the same subject at the same time from their class teacher, then there are significant differences. So typically comparing uh, a, a poor and non-poor students. For non-poor students, 
the, the fraction of kids who do better than their teacher thought and the fraction of kids who do less well than their teacher thought are about balanced. You know, so those, those all look just like sort of random errors. But for uh, children from uh, poorer homes, um, then they're twice as likely to beat what they're to do better than what their teacher thought they could do to outperform their teacher's view of them than they are to underperform. So that's what we mean by the kind of um, the subjectivity that teachers, you know, for whatever reason, definitely, you know, not through um, intentional sort of malice or anything, you know, tend to underestimate what some children can do. Um, so we need to correct for that. And the, the, the off-qual proposal of modelling or normalisation at school level is not enough because, you know, kids aren't, it's not the case that children are completely segregated into schools, into poor and rich schools. They are to some degree, but not completely. So we need some, we need some additional modelling, some um, pupil characteristic based modelling to try and uh, sort out that subjectivity bias problem. And, you know, and we can do it. It's very straightforward. You know, we have the actual marks from last year, GCSEs, coupled with all of the pupil characteristics you might want. So for every group, you know, poor uh, Black Caribbean girls, for example, um, we can see how they did relative to everybody else. And then we can get a modelling factor and apply that to the teacher assessments so that we end up with the same, the same overall distribution as last year the same relativities as last year um, and I, that that seems to me to be obviously the right thing to do well yeah it so, sounds like it to me as well and hopefully someone in dfe and Ofqual will be listening in and uh and, and will implement something that's a bit more sophisticated i guess they don't want to i guess the danger is they worry um that if anything is too sophisticated then um people will be potentially a bit suspicious and i, I, I don't know trying to <laughs> people won't understand complaint. it that's a problem I, I'm sure someone. Um, and if you don't understand your grades, uh... I'm sure someone better at marketing than I am could could find a way of clearly explaining it <laughs> in a simple way. Uh, I think I think we just adjust the marks. Um, maybe now is not the time for me to do live marketing exercise, but you know we just adjust <laughs> the marks to get the same relativities as last year. And thinking about so that's schools and teachers and and even high stakes exams at, at sixteen and eighteen. We all work in higher education and we've all got students who will be taking assessments online and um, getting their, particularly, you know, the final year students who are going to now get their uh, degree. Um, how do you think that's going to impact? So students going into the graduate labor, labor market that their, their mark is now going to have slightly um, a bit more variation, right? Because, uh, because of all these things we've talked about, the subjectivities um, where they're involved, and just the fact that this is a new kind of online assessment, everything's very quickly had to switch to your kind of final assessments are being taken in a different way, and uh, potentially this is going to be a, a noisier measure um, of your ability and, and attainment. How do you think that's going to play out for the graduates? And particularly, you know, they're going into a labour market that is probably going to be pretty difficult given that we're already in a recession and it's likely to be quite a, a, a difficult recovery um, and it's worldwide so what for our kind of immediate students we're teaching how, how do you think this new online assessment and then labor market is going to affect them okay well I'll, I'll talk about the assessment first 
Um, yes, so I think I'm, I think you're right that there could be increased uh, variability in the marks because um, this is uh, generally a new assessment system. So both the students and the, and the exam setters and the exam markers are all slightly stepping into the unknown. On the other hand, I think it may end up being that there's less variability because I think universities, uh, you know, all around the country and indeed all around the world will be concerned, will be really concerned to try and make sure that no student suffers from the fact that right at the last minute, we've had to entirely change how you're going to be assessed for your exams. So I, I know my university, I'm sure your, your universities, and I'll say all of the universities are going to be really concerned to make sure that no student suffers. So I think what we might find actually is that the at the bottom end of the distribution, kind of the, the 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 tail is cut off in the sense that nobody does really really badly that you you know you would get in a normal year. So I think um, so that's kind of artificial, but I, I suspect that's what will happen. So there may be also I guess um, the really really super high scores. I don't, I don't know whether you can get whether those will be awarded or not. People will do very well. But um, I don't know. So I, I think there are forces going both ways that, that um, the universities are going to try really hard not to uh, kind of um, punish anyone in terms of their marks. Um, but on the other hand, as, as you say, um, the labour market is just going to be horrendous um, for one year, maybe two years. So the people who are graduating very shortly definitely hope they're not listening to this because it's, life's going to be life's going to be tough. One thing we might expect to see, I think, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, an economic analysis would suggest if the labour market's going to be really tough, maybe it might be better to stay in education. So I think we might expect to see more, uh, more domestic students deciding to take a master's degree. Um, I mean, in other times, you might say maybe take a year to go travelling, but I suspect that's not going to be that popular option at the moment. Maybe might be tough. Maybe it might be tough. Um, might be, you know, travelling around Bristol or something. <laughs> um, probably less attractive than Southeast Asia. Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> or um, or volunteering for a year, or setting up a business. You know, doing a little startup. So that the people may try and take other options. But yeah, I mean, so so we know from studies in this country again, from around the world, graduating in a recession is not good news. And one of the things people can do to kind of self-protect is to use a year where they might just be unemployed or doing some uh, unimpressive little job to, to uh, I was going to say reskill, not reskill, to augment their skills in one way or another. I think it's going to be very challenging for the current graduating generation, really, because whatever you do, even if you delay your entry into the labour market and you go back into education, get a master's degree, upskill, etc., etc., the problem is when you then enter the labour market one or two years down the line, you, you know, you're still entering the labour market mm -hmm. with all the people who left with you and who are then graduating at the same time. So you get this double whammy of, of supply heading into the labour market. So it's really it's really hard to overcome sort of graduating in a recession. I mean, there are lots yeah. of academic studies that, that, that show this and that really the really effective. And I must say, you know, we've been talking about this a lot now. I mean, sort of the, the sort of the long-term effects and, and it's, it's, I'm not yet seeing enough discussion in the newspaper and in the popular press around the kind of real severe long-term repercussions on young people 
from the situation. A lot of the discussion currently about schools is, is it safe from a health perspective? So the health argument is still dominating everything, which is understandable, of course, but it does seem to me like uh, the time is now right for other people, such as economists, to come in and start talking about you know, costs and benefits. Uh, children die in car crashes every year. We haven't banned cars. So, and that's all based on the fact that there are benefits to using a car and there is costs, right? And, and it seems to me that we are starting to talk here in this little circle <laughs> of three people uh, about these costs and benefits. But, you know, it, 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 it needs to spread out a little bit. And I'm not seeing ministers step, step up yet and, and start saying to media, guys, you know, there are serious implications for young people which will last decades yeah i so i agree um so two things um i think the intergenerational issue is complex um in the sense that um yes it's young people's uh, skills and education that's being hit yes it's young people's careers that are being challenged right at the very beginning on the other hand in terms of the health it's it's you know it's dramatically it's the older people who are more at risk so it's kind of yeah it's, it's kind of swings and roundabouts i don't know whether if you could choose whether you'd rather be young or old um <laughs> in, in this particular context you know i think um middle age exactly yeah, right. yeah I, glad I'd to hear it. a bit younger i think um i would choose but yeah <laughs> well anyway anyway maybe, maybe we'll park that one the intergenerational question is 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 tricky you know it, it, there's, there are aspects both ways the other question you raise is about when should schools return, and and this is this is, um, I think, going to be a very difficult and emotional question. Um, and you're right. I mean, every, you know, the health of children. Everybody cares about the health of children. We don't want to put them at risk. We don't want to put teachers at risk either. On the other hand, as we were discussing a few minutes ago, every week of schooling missed is a week where we're losing skills. Every week of schooling missed is a week where we're increasing the inequality. Uh, in society and penalizing the life chances of children growing up in poorer families and of course it's not as simple as as, as is obvious it's not as simple as lives versus livelihoods you know livelihoods affect poverty and you can die of poverty you can die of unemployment so the 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 the, the, the thinking under that is really quite complicated um i think if we look at other countries um Denmark have started their schools back about three or four weeks ago. Sweden never actually shut its schools. Um, Italy, on the other hand, are thinking they're going to go back in September. Um, uh, the United States probably not till September. And they finished, they finished in March. So they're essentially having like um, six months with, with no education. Just imagine the impact that's going to have. So, um, yeah, I think there are very complicated issues around um, the health risk, obviously. Secondly, the skills loss. But thirdly, also, uh, maybe this also gets lost a little bit, um, is the labour supply issue. If, if we are easing lockdown and if we're opening up lots of, well, you know, some businesses, um, in, uh, different, different sort of uh, sectors of the economy, some people have to go and work in those. And people can only go and work in those if they haven't got a four-year-old at home. That needs looking after okay so unless we open the schools to do their child minding function you know at the end of lockdown isn't going to happen because you, you can only have people who haven't got kids at home looking after that, that can go back to work and the, you know it's about half about half of the workforce 
have a 0 to 18 year old uh, stuck at home. So, so it's a very complicated issue. I mean, these issues, it's very, very live. It's very, you know, there are no um, answers, just kind of questions at the moment. Uh, so we could talk about that all, all day, but just moving on away from these very immediate issues, we've talked um, a lot about education in the past on, on policy matters and how parental income and education impact uh, upon outcomes and different types of schools and this sort of thing. But we haven't actually talked very much about students themselves. Um, and I want to move on to talk to you, Simon, about some of your papers, because you've got some really um, interesting and exciting uh, papers as far as economics goes. Anyway, um, exciting papers uh, and cool papers uh, where you've looked at the kind of the role of students. And as a, as a big football fan, um, I'm very interested in your paper that looked at the link between uh, major football tournaments and, and GCSE results. So can you, uh, that sounds very enigmatic, can you explain, explain more? Yeah, so I think um, your, your intro there was absolutely right. Almost all of the, um, you know, the economics of educational literature in this field is thinking about the quality of the schools, the effectiveness of the teachers, the amount of resources they have parental inputs, um, parental genetics, you know, income and so on. And at the middle of all this is, is the student herself, the, the kid whose who's, uh, GCSEs we're worrying about, and, and very little is said about them. So, yeah, I, I've been doing a series of papers trying to understand whether pupil effort uh, matters, and then if it does, what motivates pupil effort, and then seeing if we can in, in change those motivations. So the football paper, um, although it was uh, uh, took a long time to do, it's got a very, very simple story at the heart of it, which is that any, any, um, any person who's grown up and had their education in this country will know that the, the, the key high stakes exams take place in May and June every single year, uh, apart from this year. And um, we also have the situation that if you're interested in, well, whether you're interested in football or not, uh, also happening in actually in June and July are, you know, the world's most watched football tournaments, the World Cup every four years and the European, uh, European Championship between countries uh, also every four years. So what we have is a, we have a series of years every even year. There's, a, there's an absolutely major football tournament taking place um, just when you're doing your exams, preparing for your exams, doing stuff that's really, really important. And because they're both every four years, what we have is we have a series of years, no football, football, no football, football, no football, football. So we have an alternating control and treatment in a, in a kind of experimental language there. Um, so this, you know, as an economist, this is this is just a dream, you know, where you have this is all exogenous to the student. You know, they didn't decide when they were born. In this country, we don't really repeat years very much. So you, you're stuck with what year you're going to take your exams. And, you know, FIFA and UEFA have their own timetable. So you're, you're just caught in this. Is there a football tournament when, when you take your high stakes exams or not? So for me, there was. Yes. Um, just depends whether you were born in an even year or an odd year. I managed. I managed to dodge it for both my uh, GCSEs and my A levels. But then for the, you know, three years later for the degree, it's going to get, you know, it's going to yeah. get you. So I, yeah. I. But I think by that age, I was slightly more dedicated. I was slightly uh, more mature. So I was 
slightly more mature um, emphasis on the slightly, but yeah, um, so I avoided it. But like you say, it's just completely at random as to whether you are yeah. taking exams in an odd year and an even year. Yeah, so exactly right, exactly right. And it's that kind of quasi-randomness that, that we uh, exploit. So I'm sure in your in your uh, past uh, broadcasts, you've you've introduced your listeners to the notion of the National Pupil Database. We have this wonderful data on education in this country. So we have every pupil taking GCSEs uh, and each subject that they did, the timing of those exams um, for several years. So covering both tournament years and non-tournament years. So so we, that's what we use to try and look at the impact of a pupil's ability to you know actually just put in the the hours as opposed to watch the football their ability to focus it's 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 kind of related to their non-cognitive abilities so the, the conscientiousness the ability to sort of focus self-control i am i'm just for this one time i'm going to ignore the football and do my exams um and it has it has a big effect i mean it has a big effect on average um, and it has a really big effect for some students. So I guess we're all familiar with the idea that um, up until very, very recently, like uh, two or three years ago, the key benchmark for uh, students in, in um, their GCSEs was do you get at least five good passes, at least five C grades? And um, what we found was that controlling for stuff about the student, their own characteristics, in tournament years, um, a, a student's chance of hitting that benchmark falls by 12%, six percentage wow. points, 12%. But for kids that we estimate are likely to be interested in football, so um, uh, male students, uh, students from poorer neighborhoods and white students, their, their probability fell by 28%. And these are already the low performing groups. So that's just a massive effect. It's um, huge. Yeah, it's huge. And on, on you know, so um, uh, female students are also affected by this, but less. Um, some ethnic minorities are not affected by this. I mean, they, you know, the, the, the ethnic minorities who maybe sort of favor um, cricket or rugby or something. Um, yeah, um, so we also looked at uh, GCSE points, um, because another, this may be too much detail, but another nice aspect of the study is because, because the exams partly overlap with the tournament, but not completely, we can look at within a student how they do uh, in the exams before the tournament starts and how they do in exams after the tournament is underway. So we can, can, we can, do, we can do that too. So that almost sounds like there's kind of a mini COVID event here disguised as the World Cup happening every four years or three, uh, two years, well, every two years, if you count the European Cup, uh, for students. And it really hits a particular group. I mean, that sounds really quite phenomenal. Uh, is, is there something that should be done about this? Yeah, no, I mean, you, you, you're, you're right. I mean, I know you're only kind of kidding about that but I mean it's not quite the same in the sense that you can avoid it you can decide to put the blinkers on you know you're not going to sit downstairs and watch tv you're not going to listen to the radio you're not going to do the internet and talk to your friends about it. you're just going to focus um, uh, you know and we know that that skill in the labor market is rewarded um, those kind of non-cognitive skills so it, it it's 
it, it, it is different in the sense that it is picking up something about your abilities, albeit here your non your non cognitive abilities to, to to be conscientious to to focus and so on. What can we do about it? Well, you know, we could try writing to FIFA and see if they'd move the World Cup. I don't hold out that much hope on that. The other alternative is to try and move the exams. I've had two goes at this and uh, obviously so far been entirely unsuccessful. I mean, I think, I, I don't think there's a sort of a, a large objection in principle. The question is just the, so what are you going to do, Simon? Are you going to lengthen the summer holidays and shorten the teaching year or are you just going to, or are you going to move everything you know move the start of the summer holidays the end of the summer holidays you know it's, it's, you could see that for two or three years it'd be a bit of a mess and i agree with that but the question but as you know as you said these are big effects maybe we should cope with the mess or could we alternatively just rehire steve mclaren and um make it so england never qualify for any of these tournaments again and then just hopefully dampen the impact at least that's the kind of imaginative genius this country needs. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but um, yeah, I think it'd probably do more long-term damage to people's well-being if we did that. So uh, that's probably, true. probably not a good idea. So I just want to touch on sort of, I guess, the, the positive aspect of these kind of uh, events that are largely to do around, I guess, in some way about uh, aspirations or, you know, people uh, being really attracted to one particular topic. And you've also written a paper that sort of goes the other way, which is about uh, Michelle Obama, who conveniently just released her documentary on Netflix, which I happened to watch the other day. Uh, which is incredibly aspirational. I mean, it's all about this idea of, you know, look, look at my background. I was poor. I was uneducated, whatever, like you. But then I fought my way up the ranks. And, and, and that's obviously a, a great story. But it was a very good documentary. And you've had a paper that looked at what happens to students when Michelle Obama turns up. Yeah, um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing that paper. I'm, I'm definitely a big fan. Um, so yeah, 20, uh, 2009, 2011, uh, Michelle Obama visited this school in London, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, uh, which was already you know, a well-performing school. This was, not a, this was not a bad school in any sense. The reason I think she chose it was that it's an all-girls school. It's a, a school with, um, where a very high fraction of the students are poor, and it's a school where almost all of the students are um, uh, ethnic minority students, Bangladeshis, um, actually I can't remember, black African students, children of immigrants, I guess, in, in, in large part, not entirely. Um, and, you know, this was not just a visit where she came along and sort of waved at the students and said hi and, uh, you know, she gave a speech and she gave a, a quite an extraordinary speech where she said, um, uh, education is really important. Education is how I got to be where I am, as, as, as you were just saying. Grew up in a, a poor neighbourhood in, in Chicago, ended up at um, uh, one of the finest, uh, most prestigious law firms in New York. Um, I think Harvard Law School, Yale Law School, I can't remember, one of those. Um, so she did an astonishing, astonishing change. Um, and what she said to the students was, I was like you, you know, you can be like me. And the way I did it was education. So, so study hard, take it seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, there, obviously it was Michelle Obama. So there were news teams there and they interviewed the kids afterwards and the, the kids eyes were just popping. They, they were inspired. This was going to change their lives. Uh, so, so 
again, because of this wonderful data set, we were able to uh, see how they did. Not individually, which, you know, which co just the cohort of children that she talked to at that school that, taking their key exams. And the effect was just phenomenal in terms of their GCSE points, the, the relevant cohort of kids improved their scores by 75% of a standard deviation. And this time I can tell you what that means. That means moving from a C grade to an A grade in eight subjects. So that's just an unheard of massive, massive impact. So I think, like, like I said, you know, I'm very interested in student effort. I'm very interested in uh, motivation for that effort. And one of the things that can motivate you is, is being inspired, is being inspired to, to believe that you, that sounds like a, a cheesy ad, to believe that you can do it, you know. But I mean, I think that's, I think that's the effect that Michelle Obama had. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's, uh, from a quantitative economist point of view, as you say, it's quite brilliant to get these natural variations that just, uh, you know, if you want to think about the impact of aspiration on an outcome, it's very rare that you get some inspiring random event and Michelle Obama turning up is pretty, um, yeah, a brilliant kind of um, experimental design there. And as you say, the size of the effect is just incredible. Um, I wonder what, how we could translate that into a kind of scale that up because we can't, <laughs> Michelle Obama can't go and visit every school in, in the country. But I think it does, I think you're right though, it does tell us something about the power of uh, some... Uh, inspiration raising aspirations and, and that sort of thing so there's definitely some takeaway that um, policy can make makers can can get hold of um, I think Michelle Obama even gives you a citation in her book doesn't she in her uh, autobiography Absolutely. that must be is that the coolest citation you've ever had in there oh man uh, by by a mile by a mile I almost I, think, I almost I think, fell over with happiness when I saw that <laughs> I think we're all working towards that you know the the uh the citation by Michelle Obama. But um, one of the things that can inspire effort um, in, in, a, in a slightly cruder, more um, economics kind of way, if, if I can put it that way, is um, financial incentives. We always talk on, on this program about how people respond to incentives and, and so much of economics is about designing systems so that the incentives are, are aligned with the outcomes that we like, uh, whether that's for education or, or anything else. And you've had a look before at financial incentives uh, for students taking their GCSEs, so taking high stakes exams. Um, and so I guess the question is, right, if we incentivize students with actual money, do they respond? And, and you've been able to look at that again. It's amazing um, data. Yeah. So we, again, it's part of the question about pupil effort and pupil motivations. And um, of course, there is, a, there is a motivation to doing well at school. I mean, the, the standard story, uh, still true, is that um, if you work hard at school, you'll get better marks, you'll get better qualifications, and those will help you in the labour market. And yeah, so there, there is definitely already a motivation. But the argument is that maybe students, maybe some students um, don't see that. Maybe if, if you're in parts of the world where there aren't any jobs, do you think that's just ridiculous? That's not going to help. Uh, and you know to be honest if you're 14 you know what your life what your income is going to be when you're 35 is of very little interest you know all you care about is what can happen what's going to happen tomorrow so so the idea was to try and um, provide some incentives to students to study to get them over that kind of lack of information or misinformation so yes we provided we provided money 
uh, in, a, in an experiment that was funded by the Education Endowment Foundation. Um, so we had a control group and we had a treatment group. And uh, to cut a long story short, the, the overall effect was positive, small and somewhat disappointing. Um, but when we split our students up, uh, we were trying to see, you know, did it work for any group? Was there a group that it worked well for? And we split our students up into those who were, who had English as an additional language. That is to say, English was not their first language. And this isn't a perfect marker for being the child of immigrants, but it, it's, you know, and we can easily think of counterexamples, but it's not, it's a pretty, a pretty reasonable marker. What we found is that um, the children of immigrants, um, they, you know, as, as is now perhaps reasonably well known, they do incredibly well in, in exams, um, far better than um, uh, white British, native white British students. So they were working hard, they were already working very hard, so they, they earned a lot of money from the incentive scheme, but we didn't shift their GCSE scores at all reason they were already working very hard so we couldn't there was no more scope for them to work harder um, uh, because of the incentive so they were working very hard they took the money um, we didn't change their GCSE scores the um, white British kids were not working very hard so when the incentive came along you know they were they, they uh, were able to increase their effort so their, their effort was still considerably below that of the um, uh, the children of immigrants, but they improved their effort and they improved their GCSE scores. So our overall small positive effect was actually an average of zero for the children of immigrants and quite a large positive effect for the white British kids. So again, I think coming back to the, um, the overall question of what motivates students, I think um, either, either you uh, are you know, you, you are that have conscientiousness uh, as part of your genetic inheritance from your parents. And maybe that's a big part of what's going on with children of immigrants. The, the, the immigrants have made a big decision to make a move to change their life for the better, a lot of them. Or it's something you're taught, or something that you pick up from your parents kind of uh, enacting it. So I think for those who don't have an inherent level of conscientiousness, maybe the incentive will be a way of them learning it. Probably if we think of the amount of money that would be needed to incentivize all the students, if we add it all up, it's probably less than paying for Michelle Obama to come over and go to all the different schools. So maybe that's the way to uh, uh, implement some of these findings. <laughs> well, Simon, I think there's been some incredibly fascinating stories, especially about these sort of random events and how these can impact really massively the educational performance of, of, of children. Uh, just before we wrap up, we've asked a lot of our guests uh, what they would do if they were parachuted instantaneously into the current government. So let's plonk you in as Secretary of State for Education. Now, looking beyond COVID, what do you think, what would you change? What would you look at? What do you think are the important topics of the future? But nobody warned me about that question for sure. <laughs> um, so looking beyond COVID, well, I, I think I think there are there, there are two things, and maybe they're connected. One of them is we really have to do something about the the levels of inequality um, of educational outcomes. 
uh, and the, the implications that carries for um, inequality and life chances. But I think, I think the sector of our uh, society that gets forgotten uh, in, in educational terms is the people who do not go to university. Something like half of the population of every cohort do not go to university. And yet so much of the discussion, both policy and sort of you know, general chit chat is, is about university, maybe because the general chit chatters are people who went to university. Certainly the policy makers are people who, go to, who went to university. So half of the people, you know, are um, in the, uh, go to further education or they don't get any training or maybe they get an apprenticeship and they are very badly served. <clears throat> and so I would um, want to do something about that. I think that's a, a, a cause that's very much close to what we all, we've all talked, you know, we've talked about this before and we all think um, that, that 50% who don't go to university, it's a huge area and um, definitely one for policymakers to, uh, to be picking up on. So Simon, thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating. And we've got so many more questions that we wanted to ask you about your um, research, but we've only just kind of managed to scratch the surface, but uh, we'll have to talk to you again at some point and, um, and bring those questions. So um, thanks, Simon. Thanks for coming in. Thank you both. Thank you all. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Bouchard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And we'll be back soon with more.